0: Welcome to Music Piz 101 and more on Brave New Radio WPSC. On the campus of William Patterson University, I'm your professor, David Kirk. And I'm the good Dr. Steve Marconi. Our show's a little different this week, isn't
1: it, Steve? That's right. The show's taken from our Spring Music Management Seminar Series, featuring adjunct Professor Steve Leeds interviewing iHeartMedia Executive VP Alyssa Pollock we hear them talk about how iHeart helped break Taylor Swift's album 1989
0: nationally. And more, but we don't want to give it all away. Listen hard, because there's some great stuff here. Don't you agree, my co-host with the mo-host? Whatever you say. Be sure to go to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for a newsletter read about current events in the music industry, and learn more about our podcast.
1: Yes, our podcast is available on Stitcher Radio. You can download Stitcher for free on your iOS or Android device.
0: Stick around and listen to this insightful interview, then come back next week at 8 p.m. for another great Music Biz 101 and More radio show. Free advice about the music industry every
1: Wednesday night at eight o'clock.
0: Take it away, Steve Leeds.
1: We're talking
2: to, this semester, powerful female executives in the music and entertainment industry. And um, tonight, we have a woman who I've known for more years than both of us want to acknowledge. Um, But she'll tell you her her humble beginnings. But uh, her name is Alyssa Pollack, and um, she works for an organization I'm sure you're all familiar with called iHeart. And her title is, uh, she's the Executive Vice President Of music initiatives and partner integrations. And we'll get into exactly what all that stuff means um, this evening. Um, This is a forum for you guys to learn something. So we can sit here and chat as we did on the way out in the car, but that's not going to be as productive as if you guys, you know. Contributing and being involved obviously a lot of you all of you hopefully have submitted questions But I encourage you if there's something you want to say just raise your hand and and we'll go for it So you know I'm trying to keep this as informal as possible and the idea is when you walk out of here tonight You have a perspective and have some knowledge about an area of the music industry that you might not have known enough about or any about so um, I met Alyssa I want to say, more years ago than I can remember, I was working at a record label, and she was working um, with a syndicated radio show uh, hosted by a woman named Dr. Judy, and I think the show was called Love Lines. Love Phones. Love Phones, right. Sorry, Love Phones. Love Lines is another show. And Love Phones was carried here in New York on Z100, the big Top 40 station, and and she was at the record companies um, trying to get some additional content for the show. As I recall, looking for musicians, celebrities to come on the show and and talk with Dr. Judy about their problems and whether anything had to do with their love lives. Um, Obviously, that was a long time ago. And so. 20 years. That's all? Wow. Um, But actually, I'd like to go back in time further and and just like say, okay, so here you are today um, here. At William Patterson University, but how did how did you how did it start for you? I mean, how did you even get to be working on on love phones?
3: Okay, so um, I actually had a very interesting road to my job. Um, I was getting my master's in counseling, and that was um, a little bit of a sidetrack from the law degree I wanted to get. Um, and so I needed an internship, and I love music, so I was like. Uh, what can I do that has music and counseling, <laughs> which is not an easy thing to put together, but I applied um, for an internship at Z100 for a call and advice radio show called Love Phones, and my initial job was just to speak to people who got on air and needed more counseling or who never made it on air, and, um, and then I was to counsel them. And I graduated, and uh, during that summer, they asked if I wanted to just kind of stay on with them until... You know, I applied for a real job, and somewhere in that process, I ended up never leaving and ended up in radio and not in law or psychology. So, kind of got derailed a little bit, but um, it was a great experience, obviously, because again, it was some- music is something I'm passionate about, and uh, it, you know, so it, it turned out to be actually a great mistake twist in the road.
2: So you were at Love Phones, and you were doing that part time.
3: I was an intern, intern. and then I was hired um, as a staff member on the show. And that show was then uh, taken on by a syndication company, which I became then an employee of the syndication company. And that syndication company was eventually purchased by a company that became Clear Channel, which just became iHeart. So actually, from my internship at Z100, I've actually never had another real job with another company. I've actually been with the same company for the entire 20 years.
2: Which is a very unique situation um, in, the, in the broadcast, music, entertainment industry to be spend your entire career in, 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 one, in one corporate entity, even though it's morphed over the years. Um, so you, you were offered a full-time job. What was your full-time job going to be?
3: So my original full-time job was supposed to be affiliate relations, which is selling the radio shows to radio stations all over the country. And I was like, well, I'm not a salesperson, I can't do that, but I kind of needed a job and I had school loans, so I took it, and I've been a salesperson for 20 years.
2: When you say you're selling radio shows, I mean, so you'd call up a radio station and say, do you want to buy this? I mean, it's a little more complex than that, but what were some of the tools that you had access to that might have made a programmer, say, they might be interested in a particular program you had?
3: Well, my joke is it was my psychology degree because <laughs> I was able to get along with a lot of people. But um, really, just it, 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 for me, it was always about I had to believe in the show or the service I was selling and just be passionate about it. So, you know, we had One Sheets and your standard marketing tools, but really it was selling on the belief of, you know, the show and something I really was happy to put my name behind. And I never actually did sell any of the things I didn't believe in. So it kind of worked out good because establishing credibility with the people that I was talking to, I think, was a very important thing for me in my career.
2: So while you were there, you met a a fellow um, named Rich Meyer. Mm -hmm. And Rich is one of these brainiacs who sees things and and develops things. Yeah, he's the mad scientist in the laboratory. And he was messing around with some technology and some ideas. And he came up with a thing um, that would allow people to monitor what a radio station was doing in any given market in the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, that he originally, I think it was called, called MediaBase from the beginning. It
3: was Monday Morning Replay. Monday Morning Replay. And then right. MediaBase. Media Base. And when I met Rich, um, it was a service that was on floppy disk where we were monitoring um, you know, once a week in 35 markets. And today we monitor 1,800 radio stations 24 hours a day. Um, and it, it's really: So common. you guys
2: might be scratching your heads and going, "So monitoring a radio station and then putting on a floppy disk." What the hell what, what, what is, what's the value of that? Well, I can tell you that I was a promotion man, and my job was to get airplay at the radio stations. And I had a, a friend who was a programmer, and he would give me the old floppy disks after he was done with them. And I put it in my uh, little IBM ThinkPad. And I would be amazed to see that the guy in Minneapolis, after he played that song, he would say this about the artist. Then he would play this commercial. Then he'd play this other commercial. And then he would promote this event that Station was doing. And then he'd introduce the song by another artist. And I could see without listening what this guy was doing and how many times he was playing my record or other people's records. And it was like competitive information that was like manna from heaven. Like, wow, this is cool. Now, this was, all right, he gave me, he was done with it. So this information was at least 30 days, if not more, older. But it was like, wow, so somebody's listening. And, and that's how, I guess that's how it was. They were listening and it writing started, it
3: down. Yeah, it actually started with people that would sit and listen to the station 24 hours. So even now, we still have people that will reconcile the data. We did end up, switching to technology and a computer that was able to identify the music, but we still employ people that can identify virtually any song at any point in the song by listening to about seven seconds of it. So you can imagine this is not a lot of people that that can qualify for a job like this, but it was built on people listening and identifying all the songs and the commercials and things like that. And then we actually moved on, Um, interestingly enough, not a lot of people know this, but when we did go to digital finally, we were using Shazam as our technology. So a lot of you probably use Shazam, the app, but we actually used the Shazam technology at the time, and we actually helped develop the Shazam technology into what it is today. And when we, we actually stopped using them a couple of years ago, and that's when they actually came out with the app but um, the Shazam technology would then identify the songs and then we would have people that went through and they would just look at what the computer might have missed or anything that looked strange to them so there was an extra you know process of reconciling after the computer identified the music.
2: So you were probably the first person who was actually out there promoting the this technology or at the time these floppy disks to... So who was the customer? Who was gonna... Like, why would somebody in Seattle <coughs> care about monitoring a radio station in New York?
3: Because, uh, first of all, there's a lot of stations around the country that consider other radio st- stations their standard. So, um, and there's also medium and small markets that don't necessarily have the same research. So, if I'm, you know, in a small town, I know that whatever Z100 is programming or, you know, Hot 97, I know that they've put a lot of research an effort into deciding what those songs are so for me a guy in a small market that doesn't have that research it's good for me to kind of look at what that station is doing and obviously it's also very important for stations in a market to look at their competitors and what their competitors are doing so over the years it really transitioned into a tool that the entire music industry at this point kind of bases their whole um, their bonus plans are based on media base and um, everything's based on media base because it really is what everybody uses to program their radio stations because, again, they're looking at people they think are the same as them or similar to them, or they're looking at their competitors to see what they should be doing. The music industry uses it. We actually have something called real time. So now you can literally see, you know, within a 30 second delay what a radio station is playing. So most, you know, it's almost like this I call it like the stock ticker of the music industry. Because you'll actually have record executives watching by the minute how many spins Jason Derulo has because he's going for number one against another artist, and they need to know how many spins that they have compared to the other artist. And it's a tool that you know people use in negotiating for artists and events. So if I'm a radio station and I was the first one to play Justin Bieber, I'm going to use that with the radios, with the record company, to say hey, I know that guy across the street from me wants to work with Justin Bieber, but I was the first one to play him and here's the proof. So um, it's even recently transitioned to brands and artists working together. Obviously, I think one of the biggest things and a lot of what you'll see in the future. Um, so brands are even using a system like this because if I wanna look at markets that are you know important markets for my product, I can see who the most played in that market is or, you know things like that. So it's, it's really, the customer base is growing by the minute. It's also, um, it, our airplay is used to make up all the charts on most of the shows that you listen to. So when you hear Ryan's Seacrest American Top 40, it's actually based on the media-based data, um, and as well as a lot of other you know, countdown shows that you hear. So it's kind of used in a lot of different ways.
2: So I'll bet there's some of you sitting out there who are musicians. Why should I care about what radio stations are programming or playing? I, I just want to make music. Well, I'll tell you, you, if you live in a capitalistic society and you want to make money, and recent, I think it was was it Edison? Somebody just came out, recent research, yet again, that radio is the dominant exposure medium, and it's the tool that most people use for discovery. So if, you're, if you care about getting your music, to as many people as possible, then you have to understand the the mechanism of radio and how radio, if they play your music and they play it in a significant rotation, people are going to hear it. When they hear it, if they like your music, they go out and purchase it whatever way they can, whether it's physical goods or digital. So from this class point of view, I wanted to make certain everybody understood And we're not just sitting here, you know, talking about some technology and some random way of doing things. The connection between radio and music is is very close. It's very close. Radio stations need to put something on their signal besides the commercials. So in between the commercials, they play your music. And then you want to sell music. And so how can you get your music heard by the most amount of people? And that would be via radio. So I should have set that up as a preamble here to the class tonight just so everybody understands why we're talking about um, this. And Alyssa, it, it works for the largest media company, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I would say in the world, Yeah. <laughs> right? So I mean, iHeart has more radio stations, internet stations. And by the way, you, it's hard to drive around without seeing an iHeart billboard. Um, some of them are still branded as clear channel but um so you're dealing with the biggest company in the world and as you as a musician want to get your music out to people this is one of the major entities that exist in the in the world that can take your music and bring it to a a different level and have more people hear it so other than radio stations playing your music there's other things that iheart can offer
3: Mm So, um, and it, we, we own 850 radio stations currently. That's, oh.
2: that's just in the United States.
3: That's just in the United States. Uh, we don't we don't actually own outside the United States anymore. We did have Australia, but we sold it. Um, so, it is 850 in the United States. Um, we have the corresponding websites to that. But we also have the iHeartRadio app, which I hope everybody um, has seen. And within that app, um, we stream 1,800 stations, not necessarily our own. We also... Uh, Stream competitive radio stations in there as well as well as custom stations that we create just for that so um, For a lot of new artists. We work um, With them to put together different ways to expose their music in the app Digitally Um, we've actually developed some great programs this year to help break artists something called on the verge so we um, use that program we we actually pull all of our program directors in every format every week on new music and we try and identify songs that everybody kinda feels has hit potential and then we put that into the On The Verge program which is on air exposure on the radio but again also digital and um, all of the platforms that we have so it's it's pretty great exposure but um, you know we work with every format every demo and we do like to do something for every artist not just you know the Katy Perry's and the the obvious big artists. I think there's something we could do for virtually anybody because we are reaching, we actually have pretty much 100% U.S. coverage. So we actually do want to make sure that we're appealing to the taste of everybody.
2: So um, you said you did something called On the Verge. And then if I remember correctly, there was something, um, Rising Star, something something with Macy's. Wait, Macy's Rising Star? Yeah, so, so... how does that work?
3: So Macy's Rising Star is a program we have at Macy's that's also about emerging artists. And artists submit themselves to this platform that we've built where um, we expose the music through commercials and digitally and uh, across our assets. And then fans can vote on the music that they like. So it's, it's completely a fan-voted contest, 100% down to the end. And the winner of that gets to, you know great opportunities. Like they get to open at the iHeart Music Festival in Las Vegas, and um, you know, get exposed to all of our radio station programmers and things like that. So it's definitely another great program for artists to be a part of, because even the ones at uh, Capital Cities actually was a part of the contest. They didn't win, but you see that they went on to actually do great things, and they had a couple of hits. So it's a great program, regardless of whether you actually win.
2: So under the iHeart umbrella, there's another division um, it's mostly, from my familiarity, is premier, yeah. it's radio syndication, which is kind of where your roots were exactly. or, originally. So can you, I mean, I know Ryan Seacrest has a syndicated countdown, but I'm sure there's other shows there in, the pre, in the premier world. Yes,
3: we have Mario Lopez, and we have Nikki Six and we have Rush Limbaugh. And someone named Delilah, who's on our AC stations. <laughs> does ever, I, I love how everyone always knows Delilah. It doesn't matter where I go, Delilah. No, no why, no, why did you say that? Just she love loves Delilah. She's very soothing. She does, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's very soothing. <laughs> it's great love advice. I know, and it's funny because the target is supposed to be women more my age and older, but no matter where I, I go, know. everyone loves Delilah. <laughs>
2: Well, what's amazing is Delilah here is carried in New York. I used on LTW, right? Exactly. But she's up in, is it Seattle?
3: Uh, yeah, she's actually in Seattle. Um,
2: so you listen to her. She's in Seattle.
3: I'm very you, proud to say I'm the one who got her on Light FM in New York. That was my job at the time. Um, but, you know, so Premier Radio is actually the syndication arm of iHeart. And even though we're owned by iHeart and we work with iHeart, it's only 30% of our business. So, again, we're doing business with every other radio broadcaster. So, Premier Radio actually works with 6,000 radio stations and we work with 101 countries. So you can hear Ryan Secrets on army bases in the middle of Africa and all over the world. So basically the premise of the Premier Division is that we offer out content that you know stations normally couldn't do on their own and in exchange they'll give us commercial time on the radio station and with that, we'll build a radio network that we monetize. So we can go back to Macy's, let's say, and say, hey, we've got this Ryan Seacrest Countdown. It's on 300 radio stations. Would you like to buy a spot on all of those radio stations in one shot? So it's, it's a very successful model. You know, and we do have you know, a ton of services. There's shows, but there's also, again, media bases under that umbrella. And we have a lot of other research and production libraries and all kinds of different things that fall under that umbrella.
2: I, was just, I mean, it's fascinating you think about it. Clear Channel is almost like a national radio station. I mean, most Americans are not familiar with that model because, like, for example, in England you have the BBC. Right. And so wherever you go in England, you can hear the same radio station. Mm. But in in America, until you guys really started, I mean, so there's a syndicated morning show right. that is heard in...
3: With Elvis Duran, who you guys are probably familiar with. He's like On about 80 radio stations right now, and and then followed by Ryan Seacrest, which is 160 radio stations. I want to say, so you know there are definitely more than ever. Syndication is big uh, across because you have a lot of radio groups that now just own a ton of stations, and they found that it was more cost efficient for them to put you know someone that they know is a is a great talent. Across, you know, again, stations that are in these small markets that never would be able to afford a Ryan Seacrest or an Elvis Duran on their station. So, you know, it works, and but you it will it hear a lot. It works both ways. Lot. Yeah, it works
2: both ways. The station is getting the advantage of a national air personality, and at the same time, his audience is keeps going exactly. up and up. So it's a it's, it's, a, great a, it's a win-win. And then, do those radio stations have to? How do they? You know, how do they compensate for the use of those services? Getting Elvis Duran or or Ryan Seacrest.
3: Yeah. So for the for the morning show, sometimes there is cash involved, but in most cases, it's mostly about you know bartering um, airtime in exchange for the content, and then us again creating a network that we go out and sell to advertisers.
2: And again, the music they play is the music that's going to be heard across the country. So a spin on Ryan Seacrest show gets played on how many stations?
3: You said? Well, uh, the weekend show is three hundred over three hundred stations.
2: So. In 300 different markets, Ryan Seacrest, when he plays a song, it's heard. Mm-hmm. So, pretty powerful. It's a, it's a powerful exposure tool for any musician, any wannabe, any any artist, any anybody's got a CD. And that's why I, I thought it's extremely important. We talk about this um, and make you aware of this. So, aside from this, you're you're involved with iHeart, you're with Media Base. And there's a couple other products you have that you're yeah, in so your...
3: I mean, again, after 20 years, I have morphed into five people who left. And now I'm those five people in one. So I actually have two bosses. So on one side, I oversee all the research products at Media Base. We have something called Rate the Music that you guys may or may not have heard of and, and we now work with Shazam and um, something called Big Champagne. So there's a lot of research products that we have under our umbrella that we work with radio stations and record labels on. And then on the other side, under my other boss, I do artist relations for Premiere and iHeart. So that's the iHeart Music Festival. Or you know, J. Lo has a new album coming out, so we'll work with her record label to come up with things that, you know, a great example we just did was um, Taylor Swift when she came out with her new album. So we had her, for the first time ever, co-host Ryan Seacrest's Morning Show. But we also had her do Elvis Duran. And you know we have someone named Kane and John Jay and Rich. And so she literally took over every Top 40 uh, show that we have. And also, um, Mario Lopez. So she did a million shows in one day. So for that entire week, it was Taylor Swift hosting all of our shows. And that was a huge, we'd never done that before. And we did it with Diet Coke, which was great because we were able to tie in an advertiser which is something we obviously try and do more and more now so it was really an incredible big look for her and then we the end was her doing the album release party on the roof of a building <laughs> with a helicopter flying over so that that is something I'm very fortunate to kind of get to work with you know with artists but we also do things again with emerging artists so for me I personally love working with the artists that no one's heard of yet and are just starting out because it's really great to watch the transition between when you know they come to our building and they're you know very innocent and they've never done anything and then three months later you know you see them and you can't get near them because they're being mobbed by people and they have a crew of 20 people around them and you're like what just happened it's it's really a fascinating thing to kind of watch
2: so can we take a peek inside Alyssa's crystal ball and say what do you think that you've heard something that maybe people in this room haven't heard of yet and they uh, a couple of weeks or a couple of months from now, it will matter?
3: Um, yeah, you know, I should, yeah, I should have came prepared for that because there's definitely a lot of them. Um, you know, George Ezra is somebody that's big and breaking. Um, you know, Hosier was something that I was all about eight months before it ever got near radio. Because again, because we deal with a lot of the research products, we're now able to look across a host of data points and say, <coughs> Whoever this person is, they're going to be big because they're popping on Shazam and, and the streaming services and the social networks, but they have no airplay yet. So um, I'm blanking on any great okay. examples right now, but I, I will say the new Mumford & Sons that came out yesterday, my new favorite song right now. It's awesome. <laughs>
2: it You glossed over Rate the Music. Could you just explain to people what's Rate the Music? Maybe some people here have been Yeah, so um,
3: Rate the Music is, um, it's been around for probably 15 years or so now. And it's a database we have where um, people who are very passionate music listeners join so that they can give us their opinions on music. And there's a couple of different uses for it. So we have a couple hundred radio stations that use it because it helps them determine what the audience thinks about certain music that they're considering putting on, you know how their morning show bits are doing, things like that. Um, the record labels use it because when Britney Spears has a new album coming out, they're not really sure which is the right single to go out with. So they'll have us test something like that in the database to determine whether or not there seems to be more potential for one song versus another. Um, they might want to try and determine whether a song is going to cross over from one format to another, um, we've had situations where Lionel Richie is one of my favorite cases. He had an album coming out that he wanted to target a younger demo and nobody believed that that could happen. And we actually tested it and we found out that not only was the younger audience familiar with Lionel because of Nicole at that point, but it was actually a very positive response to him versus what they were expecting. So they released the album because of that study and it, it actually did very well. So. There's really a lot of different uses for rate the music, but it, it really is another system that people use to help them determine what music they're gonna play and what music is going to be released. So it's kinda cool.
2: Um I, I used to dabble a bit with um <coughs> the company Big Champagne, which you guys now own. No, so we partner with. You partner with. So. Okay. So what what value I mean? What what do you do with Big Champagne? Because they're a a very research-driven company.
3: Yeah, so um, Big Champagne actually originally started as a company that measured the legal and illegal downloads that were going on. They were very much ahead of the curve on that. So it it was kind of interesting because at first people hated them because they kept feeling like they were perpetuating stealing music online, but obviously they weren't. They were just measuring what was actually happening. And It was really interesting because they were, you know, what people like and what they actually do or or say they like and what they actually do are two different things so it was really interesting to see what people would steal versus what they were willing to buy Um, and so over the years that system really evolved and they did a lot of great deals with other partners so they have YouTube information that they're tracking and Facebook and Twitter and things like that so it's it's another great tool for us to kind of examine how an artist is doing so we can see You know, the radio single might be one song, but we can see that people are sharing and, you know, um, searching for other songs on the album. So um, that's an interesting thing to look at because it tells you what the audience likes versus what they're being fed. Um, They have another great um, measurement which shows fan engagement. So um, I don't know if anyone's heard of Janelle Monet, but she has a fan engagement score equal to the Beatles and Taylor Swift. Whereas, you know, someone like Gautier only has, you know, the fans only like one of his songs, which we know makes sense. So it's it's interesting to see whether the fans are about the song or about the artist, depending on how many songs of that artist they're really engaging with. Um, And it's a great way to also see, again, Hosier stood out, George Ezra, all of them stood out in the service because... It's socially, I feel like nowadays the audience is kind of telling us what they want, but we as radio sometimes think we know better, so we don't always listen quick enough, but it's, it's a really great tool because it's really tracing what the, the consumers are doing, and so you're able to really identify songs and artists much earlier than when we get to them because, again, socially you can see that people are talking about them and tweeting about them and, and sharing them on Facebook, which is you know, really great information.
2: Then you have uh, another tool called Rate the Music.
3: That's what we just talked about.
2: OK, but that's, that's in part of, use Big Champagne as part of that? No, it's separate. It's, separ- it's separate, OK. Yeah, but well,
3: then- we, we have a new chart um, that we just created. And it's but, we take all of these into one chart now. It's the Media-Based Power Playlist. And we're basically taking airplay, streaming, uh, so, uh, sales, Uh, video and Shazam for the first time ever and we're putting that all into one chart so what's great is uh, on the airplay chart only that's just what radio is playing but in this particular chart you're letting the artists that have great social networks or you know big YouTube views they're getting credit for that even if they're not as much on the radio so again a Justin Bieber or a One Direction like you know they're getting credit for all of the amazing social activity they have, even if they haven't gotten a lot of airplay yet. So, uh,
2: I, I I was I guess mistaken. I thought Rate the Music had some um, interactive with the audience, where they were if a radio station would solicit and yeah, call. Yeah,
3: did I not explain that enough?
2: Well, no, I, I I was confused. I thought okay. I I was back in the uh, back in the day. Um, would, they would take a cross-section of the country of the of the feedback from the audience and it, and use that as part of it?
3: We do. Okay, I'm sorry. I left that part out. So okay. of the people in the database, every week we send out a test of the top songs in each format, and we test it amongst this national database of people. And then those scores okay. are something that are seen within MediaBase, so the programmers can use that, again, as a gauge. It's, um, it's much more of a predictive tool because, again, MediaBase is just... Measuring what's happening, whereas Rate the Music and Big Champagne and Shazam are actually kind of more predictive services because Rate the Music is a very passionate audience that are voting on this music. So typically it's about four to six weeks ahead of the curve on regular radio research. So a lot of times, again, you're getting earlier, passionate scores on these songs before they're, you know, it's, it's catching up on the airplay side.
2: Any of you get a phone call ever from a, a radio station, or research company, asking for your opinions on music? No? no.
3: This is an online tool that we also have something right. called critical mass media, which right. calls people on the phone and asks them right. you know, what their opinions are on music.
2: Um, what about, what's the other, uh, it's M-Score?
3: M-Score. So M-Score is a tool, um, it's the first ever tool that actually shows the consumer behavior without them saying it. So we're measuring the actual behavior versus their opinion and what they're telling us they're doing. So um, are you guys familiar with the uh, PPM, the personal people meter and Arbitron, by chance, which is now Nielsen? Um, so you, you, there's- you, You've not heard of it? Uh, no. So okay. there's about 70,000 people in the US that wear like a little beeper. And it that allows this company, Nielsen, to track Everything they're exposed to during the day, from a music perspective, and that's how radio stations are rated now. So, if you know if you're listening to Z100, they get the credit for it. Um, if you're listening to Q104, they get the credit for it. So, what we did was we took the um, data from Arbitron, and we overlaid the actual audio on top of that. So, at any given minute, we know when you know one of the people carrying this in their car we know that if they heard a song on the radio and they switched from Z100 to PLJ or from PLJ to Q104, we have a baseline for each radio station. So we know at any given time during the day whether the you know, people um, tune out, how much they tune out or stay in. So that's the baseline. So now we're able to show when a song, somebody, is actually staying longer than they typically would or if they're tuning out faster which, again, helps us determine what somebody's opinion is. But a good example on that is Chris Brown, because if people were to call and ask um, whether you like Chris Brown, a lot of people don't want to admit that. But when Chris Brown, when people are in their car, they were not turning off Chris Brown, and they were rocking out to his song. So, again, it's a really good indication of the actual behavior versus what somebody's willing to admit that they like. Now,
2: that behavior, then, is a tool that a programmer can use to determine how much or how little exactly. to, pro- to program a song.
3: So it's great to kind of see when a song is starting to burn you know or, or whether it's really reacting so a lot of times we'll have a new song that comes out and it really takes a while before it starts getting a positive score um, but you'll also see when something comes out and immediately people are staying and listening to that song and enjoying it. And then on the reverse, you'll see when they start getting sick of hearing Lady Gaga for the you know 20th time in one day, and you can see they're, they're starting to tune out a lot faster. And that's a great indication to a radio programmer that it's, it's probably time to kind of play the song less. And it's really interesting, because when we look at it, sometimes people will adjust based on that, and you'll see the score actually goes up again. Because people, you know, it's, it's actually an interesting thing to find the right balance, what the sweet spot is, of how many times people want to hear a song or not, so it's it's a great tool again to figure out whether your audience is getting sick of what you're playing.
2: So so much for the vision of somebody <laughs> sitting in a studio with a, a box of CDs or whatever or MP3s okay. and just picking things out. There's always too this, much research now. There's, there's a lot of thinking and thought process that goes through overthinking. I think. And there there's a there's a thought that maybe it's over it's overthought but um, understanding that your favorite on-air announcer is not picking necessarily that music. They're being told or being given a list to work off of that has been researchly and scientifically looked at, and do do sales enter the equation anymore?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely, because again, that's another measurement. So um, all of those are indications. In fact, part of what I do is when we do these programs with artists I actually will go back on the back end and check what kind of you know ROI or return on investment we call it you know there was so I can see that when we you know um, we when we start an on the verge artist I can see the social went up 23 percent I can see that the sales went up in all the markets that our radio stations are in that are playing the song so what's interesting is again there's so much data out in the world that it's very easy and very quick to be able to determine what is a hit nowadays because if we're playing a song a lot and people aren't buying it or streaming it that pretty much is telling us that the audience isn't connecting with it while conversely if we're playing a song and all of a sudden you know sales shoot up 300 percent we know we're onto something because people are reacting to it so sales is definitely an important indication of whether a song is connecting
2: because back in traditional radio days a radio station might determine what they play based upon sales And it was easy to, not easy, but it was, one could manipulate the sales story to convince the programmer that this particular song is doing better than you would think because they would send people out and buy singles or or whatever, or or purchase downloads. But now, multiple ways you can sort of cut through the BS and see what is legitimate, what's real. Because
3: iTunes is really hard to manipulate like that. right. Right. You it's, well, you know, could, but it'd be very could, expensive. You could, but it's very ex- Exactly. So yeah. iTunes
2: is a very quick way of seeing what the public's taste is like. You, you had a question, sir.
1: Well, so. related to that, I was that the DJ has almost no freedom at all anymore. I mean, you, they kept getting less and less, but now it's zero. Virtually nothing. They've just been <sighs> pressed buttons. I, I
3: think there are some DJs out there that that have built their entire reputation and personality around that, and they might still have that flexibility, but for the most part...
1: They wouldn't be in major markets.
3: Not really. But again, you, you might get... I mean, this is a bad example because he doesn't play music, but someone who's at the level of a Howard Stern that wields enough power that yeah, well, people are going to let him do whatever he wants, he right. might be able to pick music, but most of the other jocks are not. Even Ryan, he, he will have input because, again... He might, he has his own relationships with artists, so he might want to do something with JLo, but he wouldn't do it without probably running it by the people at the radio station. But I think a lot of people are okay with it because, again, the music is chosen because there's so many indications that say that people like it, you know? So we don't get too many arguments about it, but, i will say us as a company um we do do this weekly test at something called clear channel music meeting or i should say now i Heart music meeting and every week we're sending out this music to every programmer in the country regardless of whether they're in new york or fairbanks alaska so we are trying to get the input of all the programmers to really see what music they like and what they want to get behind so we're trying to give them as much input as possible and not just have it be some dictatorship, but it's definitely something that we're making what we think are the smartest choices on what right. people are going to like.
1: So then now the, the, the role of the independent promo man, does it exist
0: anymore?
3: It does. Yeah, because, and and now labels, because they've pared down a lot on their staff and expenses, I, I feel like it's actually coming back a little bit, because they're they're hiring out and contracting People to help them work the records to the radio stations. Um, and so there's always been that relationship of, you know, making the, you know, the, connecting the artist and the radio station and trying to do things that benefit all parties. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's the hope, you know.
2: There's, there's also a lot of small independent labels that um, still want to be competitive. And yeah. so they'll employ yeah. the outsourced outsource services to get their music at least heard or get the feedback from the programmers to know what yeah. the next step I might mean, be. I mean, the great
3: thing is the internet has very much, I think, leveled the playing field because there's a lot of artists like Adele, you know, that, that came from independent labels in London, in the UK, and they did eventually partner with a major label at some point just to help them from a manpower perspective, but people are discovering music all the time in different places. So it's not like only the major label songs that they're pushing are the ones that and that's what I was kind of saying earlier about looking at who's really who the audience is really responding to because uh, you know a lot of these artists have huge followings online, you know, and on streaming services and YouTube and they they don't even have a record label, they have a independent label. Or they've never been, you know, heard by the mainstream yet, but you can get your music out there and if it's a hit it, you have a chance to kind of expose it.
2: The one thing you can say about Alyssa is she's very passionate about what she believes in, and her passion uh, bleeds over to other areas of the entertainment industry. And she's involved in quite a few um, charitable endeavors. Um, just wondered maybe you could touch on a few of them because I know you're on a couple of boards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I I look at her in awe and I go, she does this, this, and this. She's involved in this and this. She's always answers her own phone nine times out of ten, and uh-huh. yet she, you know, w- the the one thing that is her signature event every year um, is coming up soon. Um, it's it benefits the City of Hope. Um, she give is, the whole background on this. Absolutely.
3: Okay, so uh, I, I'm actually on three charity boards and at least three other committees. I'm very charity driven. Um, The first one was something called City of Hope, uh, which is a research cancer and treatment facility in um, Los Angeles. And the real reason I was invited to be on the committee originally is because somebody wanted me to hopefully get my company to buy a table. And um, this was many years ago, and I walked in the room, and it was pretty much the president of every record label and myself. And I was nowhere near them in title or salary or power, and I was like, ooh, I'm not really sure how I'm going to... Up with this group. I was very nervous and intimidated, and so uh, the first day they didn't even recognize that I was in the room. They forgot (laughs) I was even there. And so I went back to work that day and I was like, oh boy, I don't know what I'm gonna do. These guys are gonna really, you know, show up with some great stuff next week. I better get creative. And so I spent that whole week trying to figure out ways, uh, you know, different things I could do. So I ended up getting Barry Manilow to donate tickets to meet and greets, which raised like 50 grand. And then I was in the kitchen and I ran into a salesperson and she's like, hey, uh, you know, um, Chevy's trying to get the new Escalade into a music video. And I was like, "Okay, well, they donate an Escalade to my charity and I'll try and get one of these presidents to put it in a video. And they're like, yeah. So by the time I got back to the meeting the next week, nobody in the room had done anything. And I had, you know, probably raised three hundred thousand dollars by doing just, you know, random things. And it was a great lesson because You know, again, they didn't acknowledge me, and they were like, went around the room, and they were like, "Okay, that's the end of the meeting." I'm like, "Excuse me, sir," you know, um, "I have," and and they were like, "Who is this girl?" But the the greatest lesson of all was, it it, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to write a personal check for fifty thousand dollars. It's about creativity and about passion and figuring out. So within my own job, I actually. I, oh, I forgot. I left out the most important part. I decided I was going to throw a wine tasting dinner, even though I don't really drink and I've never thrown an event. So um, I put together this wine tasting that almost was a disaster, and at the last minute, somehow, it became—you know—it was successful. And now we're about to have our ninth one. We've raised over three million dollars, and um, and and now I, I I'm constantly asked to be on charity boards because I joke I'm the youngest and poorest one on all of these boards, but that's the reason why I do well is because I actually have to figure out ways to raise money other than a, a lot of the people that will just write a check and never do anything else for the rest of the year. But the most important part of it is, A, I think it's the best thing you can do is give back. But even from a professional standpoint, it's allowed me to make relationships with people that probably would never have answered my phone call you know, during any of those times. But, you know, but they do now. They do, and and it, and it's been great. And um, I so the other one is musicians on call, which is a program where musicians go to the bedsides of patients oh, and play for them. do that. But
2: so, the, okay, talk sorry. about the wine dinner. I mean,
3: so the wine dinner. So we started with um, we prayed for 300 people. We got kind of close the first year. Um, now we're over 500 every year. We kind of can't even fit people in anymore. Um, and it's really become probably one of the best attended events in the music industry and, and,
2: and it's an it's a real auction
3: and it's a real it's a and real if you're, auction. If,
2: you're a, if you're a wine head and there are a lot of executives in the entertainment yeah. industry who live and breathe for food and wine exactly and so she gets people to donate
3: yeah so the way it's structured is each table is actually sponsored by somebody so LA Reed is one of our sponsors and he fills that table with wine and so we have all these different people that come and serve the wine at each of the tables and we have all the record companies and radio companies that buy tables to come and get served this wonderful wine but it's really what's great about the event is it's one night where there's no politics and no competitiveness and everybody's drunk and having fun and so i love getting pictures of people i know hate each other like hugging and high-fiving and it's really just because you know at the end of the day it reminds everybody like what you know what's important you know because um, I lost my dad. Uh, I, I created this, you know, nine years ago f- for the reason that I kind of explained, and, and I ended up unfortunately losing my dad to cancer, which made the event very personal for me, and, and it really made it personal for everyone else too, because I was like, listen, you know, we come here every year and we love it because, you know, we get to hang out, we get drunk and we have fun and but you know this is a reminder as to why we're really in this room and and you know the music industry it's interesting we we are jaded because every day we're working with music artists and doing fun things but pe- there are people out there that you know I got $60,000 for someone to meet Katy Perry that paid for you know a program for 2 years at a hospital I mean so it's it's very powerful stuff to be able to give back it's so easy because again I think a lot of people become intimidated by charity if you think to yourself I'm just one person what am I going to do but it's really about donating your time or finding a creative way to work that into your life and and that's what I kinda did with my job so because I'm in marketing and sales I figured out how with almost every program I put together, I'm like, by the way, can I stick two more people at the end of the line of that meet and greet and you know, auction it all so we can benefit this charity or that charity? And most people are used to me doing it at this point, so they're very cool about it. But we've raised millions just by sticking two people at the back of a meet and greet line that 300 people are at anyway. You know, So it's, it's really been one of the best things um, I've done, and hopefully it'll be my legacy. I think it's far more important than anything I've ever done but uh, the Musicians on Call, so I, what I was going to say is I, I lost my dad, so what I did was I actually started a program with one of my charities, Musicians on Call, and launched a music program at City of Hope. So it becomes more and more personal to me you know, as we go, because I think charity very, it is very personal at the end of the day, right? But I think it's a great thing for you guys as you develop your careers. I think it's so important personally and professionally, to just have that be something that you do, because it's very rewarding and fulfilling. But again, if you're more, but it also is a great networking thing if that's, and, and I, personally I don't care what anyone's agenda is with charity, if you're still doing good, it, it's okay.
2: Anybody have any questions? We can go to some of the questions you guys um, sent in. Um, uh, Sean Clark wanted to ask you, what was the greatest challenge you had at iHeartRadio?
3: Um, what has
2: been the greatest?
3: Okay, so I'm going to give the most honest answer ever for this room, which is staying relevant. I'm we just talking about this in the car. I've been with the same company for 20 years. there has been different ownership. Um, you know, I'm now 45 versus 25, and, you know, just staying staying relevant, staying um, you know it, it's a very relationship oriented business so you know again continuing to keep those relationships intact but also having to reprove myself every time there's a new boss or there's a new owner of the company and you know it's it's something that I, it's a blessing to be at the same company for 20 years but also again it, it's you always have to make sure that you're evolving and changing and, and making sure that, that your job is still needed on the on the payroll. So,
2: I, I, I suppose I'd be derelict if I didn't bring up the obligatory question. So um, it's a very male-dominated industry. Um, there's a lot of chauvinism, obviously. And I wondered how you, as a little pipsqueak at 25 years old, 20 years ago, what what speed bumps or impediments might have you run into and how do you handle things like that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of um, female students here who would like to get involved, but they probably wanna know what, what challenges, opportunities they're gonna face.
3: I think it's, it's, it's a hard question, but I personally never allowed or thought about being a woman as something that held me back. And so I was, I knew that, you know, there was certain- it something that helped you. You know what? I think yes. I think it helps, and it's also a challenge. Um, I think it helps because you know I can be on the phone with somebody and be like, "Oh my God, I love you!" And there's no way a guy would say that to another guy. So just the way I can talk to men, you know, again, not and I don't mean in a flirty way, but just you could just say things as a girl that a guy would not say. I think being girls are sometimes more compassionate or more easily, uh, we communicate better sometimes. And so, you know, I've actually mediated guys, talking to guys, I'm like, you know, Tommy feels like you're not really supporting him. <laughs> and, you know, and so so I think from that perspective, it's actually been obviously very good to be a girl. But on the other hand, um, you know, you do deal with what you would think you would deal with in a very male-oriented business. But I think it's very important as a woman to to present yourself as a professional, to make sure that, you know, I always felt like regardless of what anyone else wanted to say or do, what was important was how I presented myself, and I always made sure that I was never using a woman, you know, being a woman in an inappropriate way or in a flirty way, I just would ignore, you know, I I would just kind of handle myself. And I think that with men, um, in my experience, if you just showed them that you were serious and you you know had something important to say, they, the, the teasing or anything that you ran into kind of stopped. So I just never allowed it to be an issue for me. I just kind of powered through it. And if somebody was truly inappropriate, which didn't happen too much, I would just address it directly and just say, hey, this is, I'm not comfortable with this. And again, normally I was okay. So, I mean.
2: Okay, great, that's great, thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> back to the questions, uh, Giancarlo, I uh, said, uh, when you're booking an artist for a radio station, what are some of the main things you look for, and how does the dynamic of a record company come into play?
3: So we look for a lot of things. Um, one is, again, how well we think the audience is going to respond to that particular artist and what kind of draw they're going to have. Um, the second thing is, how easy are they to work with? Because nowadays, it's it's unbelievable how difficult it could be, so... I don't think the artists actually realize how much we do factor this in, but a lot of times if I'm familiar with an artist or their manager or their record label and I know it's going to be difficult and I know it's just as easy for me to book somebody else who's great to work with, I'm going to go with who's easier to work with. Um, Sometimes it's a financial thing. Um, If we only have a certain budget, we can only afford a certain level artist, then that obviously comes into play. Um, And last but certainly not least for me is... How good of a partner that artist has been to us, you know, because we've had a lot of people that are great, great partners to us, and then their next song isn't the smash that the last one was. And I think, you know, in those cases, it's we try and give them the benefit of the doubt because they've really been a good partner. So I think it really becomes a two way street.
2: Joe, I'll ask a couple of interesting questions. This one, Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of working in such a fast-paced industry?
3: Uh, Okay, so the advantages are um, that it's fun. Um, it's, It's always changing. It's always unique. Again, it's 20 years, and I'm not bored, and I still look forward every day to going to work. I love what I do. I think that's the greatest blessing ever because... I'm at work more than I'm at home <laughs> so you know to really enjoy what I do is definitely a blessing and that's because it's always evolving and, and changing and we're doing new things but again it's very difficult the challenge would be again I work you know these are very big companies and you know they're constantly looking to cut costs or do things differently and so you know it's you're always worried about you know how how, how long you have before you could potentially be cut. <laughs> but, you know, that's to me the job, biggest challenge. Job security? Job security, yeah. She also asked, uh,
2: have you been part of the planning and production of the March 29th iHeartRadio Awards?
3: I have. <laughs> Actually, um, that our, all of our data was what helped determine who those nominees were. So we we don't explain a lot on TV because you have about two seconds or you've got like one sentence that flashes. But it was very much data-driven. We went through and really looked at who had the most airplay and who had the most you know, sales and social, and there was a lot of things that went into that. So it was actually a very scientific um, way of coming up with who the nominees were.
2: All right. Um, Mark wanted to know, um, what lessons did you learn from Craig Kitchen in the early days? And in what really? Way- did somebody ask that? Yep. And in what ways did Who he inspire or push you? I don't know. I just
3: read about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, it, what was the end of this? So question? Was the question
2: was how did you, what, what lessons did you learn from Craig in the early days, and what ways did he inspire or push you?
3: Integrity, integrity, integrity. Uh, we were talking on the way here that he kind of ruined my life because he was one of those bosses. That he was just the greatest, and when he came to the office, we all floated on a cloud because he—he I loved the way he did business. Um, He did the right thing, not the right thing for us, and he was very much relationship-driven. He was about, you know, really being loyal and respectful to the staff. And the greatest thing about him is. you know, I'm not. You know, I'm obviously on my best behavior now, but I'm definitely a unique personality. I come from Staten Island. My accent was way thicker back in the day. I've, I've practiced it. So he was the kind of guy that was able to identify unique people with with different talents and not try and put us all in a box. He just let us be us, and he really encouraged that. And he created an atmosphere where. <laughs> You know, he really helped foster everybody to be the best that they can be. And we were all very much about loving each other and working together and rolling up our sleeves and doing anything that was or wasn't our job. So he created really an atmosphere that allowed me to be at one company for 20 years and turn down, you know, double my salary at any given time during my career because I'd rather work for Craig Kitchen than make more money, which people thought was crazy. But I, I really believe happiness is a huge factor in your life versus money. And the rest of it works itself out. So um, it was a great lesson to learn of how to, you know, how to treat my staff now, and you know, own how to work with other people around me, and how to just conduct myself as a business person.
2: Here's another question that'll surprise you, uh, asked by Michael. What specific qualities do you think Darren Davis saw in you that distinguished you from others?
3: Okay, that's interesting. Well, um, Darren Davis and I uh, know each other for over 20 years, well about 20 years. Explain who
2: Darren Davis is. Okay, Darren Davis
3: is now my current boss. Um, He started as one of my clients many, many, many years ago, but over the years, both of our jobs have kind of changed, and most recently he became my boss, and um, he's another person who's been in the company forever and worked his way up. Isn't
2: there a lesson there, though? So he was a little programmer in a market, Mm -hmm. and you were trying to get him to carry your programming. Exactly. So... If you didn't treat him nicely back then, he exactly. could come and bite you in the butt.
3: I, I think the number one mistake people make is not being nice to the assistant. The assistant, most of the time, really runs the show. And people, people I think, are, are very dismissive. I, I've run into people that are very dismissive or judgmental based on title, and I think that's absolutely crazy. I don't care what your title is or who you are in a company. I'm going to treat you exactly the same. And, and that's definitely worked out. Again, it was very lucky for me that that was something I was taught very early on because Darren is now my boss. <laughs> and had I been mean to him all those years ago, he probably wouldn't be my boss and I wouldn't have my current job. So thank you, Darren Davis. But um, again, um, I think for me, I've been fortunate that I am very unique and I am very relationship oriented, which has been probably the best strength in me having a long good career because I you know I was nice to people and they were nice to me and we did good business. and again, over those years we all grew up and people that you know I was an intern with now became you know the heads of companies and because we were all good to each other and loyal, that ended up working in my favor. so Darren recognizes you know my relationships and you know my passion. I'm a little passionate <laughs> about things and um, a little obsessive, so I think he recognized that and I think loyalty is the key. I mean, I was loyal to Darren before he was my boss, and I think that was something that made him feel good about me working for him, was knowing that I would be loyal.
2: So I think what we've learned this evening is loyalty, honesty, and the one thing that runs through everything you said this evening, and I think everybody should understand that and take that to heart, um, or take it to I heart, (laughs) is, is the P word, your passion for everything. So I appreciate your passion of taking the time here and traveling through the rain and sitting in traffic and getting lost and all that, and coming here tonight to uh, talk with the students here and, and, you know, giving them some solid, honest advice.
0: And, and, and I really appreciate Thank that. And, I, th- and I, th- I think they all appreciate that too. You've been listening to William Patterson University's Music Management Seminar Series on Music Biz 101 and more.
1: If you missed any of this, just head over to our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or stitch your radio on your mobile device and download our
0: podcast. I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye now. For Steve Leeds, our special guest, our esteemed and very valuable producer, Philip Goralkowski, and the good doctor, Esteban Marconi, I wish you an adios!